I think AI is the biggest change in our world since the invention of electricity. Mm. A bigger change than the internet. Um, mm. And if you're not using it for half an hour a day, you don't understand. Mm-hmm. You should. You need to put it on your calendar and go use it. What's up, Brand Builder? Stephen Hurahan here on the Brand Master Podcast. And in this episode, I'm speaking with the one and only Mr. Seth Godin about branding and marketing in the age of AI. Now, Seth is arguably the GOAT when it comes to branding and marketing. He certainly had a massive impact on my career and my philosophies as he has had millions of other branders and marketers around the world. Early on in his career, he built and sold some early internet marketing companies for literally tens of millions of dollars. This is way back in 1998. And since then, he's written 21 bestsellers in the marketing industry, including classics such as The Purple Cow, This Is Marketing, and All Marketers Are Liars, to name just a few. And I have to say, I really, really enjoyed our chat today. And we dug into branding and positioning with tension in the modern age. We spoke about the impact of AI in the marketing industry and how AI is the biggest thing since electricity, according to Seth, and how professionals and brand builders can stay ahead in the AI age. So if you want to learn from a futurist who literally wrote 21 bestsellers of the industry, selling tens of millions of copies, then don't miss this episode of the Brandmaster Podcast. Welcome to the Brandmaster Podcast. Show specialized in helping branding professionals and entrepreneurs build brands using strategy, psychology, and creative thinking. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brand Master Podcast. And I am absolutely delighted, ecstatic, over the moon to have the one and only Mr. Seth Godin on the show with us today. Seth, who needs no introduction, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, a pleasure. Happy to chime in if I can. Beautiful. Uh, now, you are. Uh, this is a perfect example of the philosophy that I like, which is if you don't ask, you don't get. I was actually chatting with my team and we were going through, who should we have on the podcast? And Seth Godin came up and I said, no, 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 don't don't send an email to Seth. Seth. Seth will be too busy. And then I said, you know what? Just send it. Just send it. He might say yes. And uh, when the email popped up, I was, uh, I was absolutely delighted. So, uh, well, thank so, yeah. you. I don't, I don't want to start by having an argument with you, but I don't uh, have much truck with the, if you don't ask, you don't get philosophy. No. I think it's, if you don't offer, you can't make things better. And I didn't view showing up on this podcast to chat with you as something you would get or something mm. that you were asking that mm. plenty of people spam me and ask me for ways that I can help them achieve their goals. Mm. But we're aligned. So you made Beautiful. an offer and I thought this is fun to do together. So here I am. And and I, I've watched a ton of your stuff on on the lead up to this. And I've I, I noticed the philosophical uh you know background to your to your chats and and uh just going through your bio, I noticed that your your studies were actually in philosophy. So I was like, ah, you know, that's why. <laughs> and I was I was I was even tempted to to just throw at the whole marketing and branding stuff and just have a, a, a chat like that because some of some of your uh, previous interviews have been uh, really really fascinating. But as a as a man who lives and breeds marketing, you know that we are we are here to serve a specific audience, mm-hmm. and our specific audience are brand builders, uh, marketers, brand leaders, and they want to know what you think about that side of 
the the, sure. the business. So um, so I'm going to start with um, just a, a kind of broad one. Now I know that you talk a lot about the way people used to speak about advertising and marketing synonymously, but marketing is is you know this whole other uh, kettle of fish. It's 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 uh, you know it's it's way beyond that. I speak about branding and marketing in the same kind of way. Um, because I do believe that branding as it was once taught, you know, as, as a subset of marketing has evolved into this bigger entity. What's your take on that? And, and how do you see the, the, the balance between the two? Well, you know, the people who are listening understand better than almost anybody that a brand is not a logo. Mm-hmm. But we still get stuck on the language. Like we have a new brand. Well, no, you don't have a new brand. You have a new logo. Mm-hmm. Or we're going through a branding exercise. Well, no, you're actually going through a logoing exercise. I don't think logos matter. And one of my favorite ways to think about this is, you know, close your eyes for a second and visualize what you think of as a great logo, right? You got one in mind? Mm-hmm. Almost always people will identify one that is actually associated with the brand they admire that very few people pick evil sig- symbols from World War II, even though from a logo point of view, they were pretty powerful, mm-hmm. right? But we don't do that. And in fact, the Starbucks logo is terrible. It's mm-hmm. just a terrible logo. Why would you want a half-naked person with bad hair, <laughs> right? But we associate it with a brand. So mm-hmm. branding is, I think, the act of building a story that's resilient that finds a spot in someone's brain because they want it there. Mm-hmm. That it's a shorthand for the promises that we're making and whether or not we're going to keep them. It's a symbol that we've earned trust. Mm. And so getting your brand right has nothing to do with how you look and feel. It has a lot to do with how other people think you mm. look and feel. Mm. Yeah, and that's it. Like you, you hit the nail on the head. There is a massive education gap in the market when it comes to brand, and uh, we see that more and more because it's so easy now to start a business, and you don't need an education in branding or marketing to start a business, and you make a lot of assumptions as a newbie entrepreneur, mm-hmm. and that that's where a lot of the confusion is coming from because you know you've got a lot of people speaking about stuff in a certain kind of way when uh, you know. As you said, you know there there are there are some some differences there that that need to be understood to be able to apply them correctly. Now, I speak a lot about strategy specifically, and uh, you know, when I talk about brand strategy, I talk about the likes of positioning, storytelling, mm-hmm. uh, brand personality. When I uh, so so to me, the the strategy of the brand is the method of the brand. And then to me, marketing, which you might argue with me here, is the mobilization of that brand. So mm-hmm. how this method is mobilized in the market. Yeah. Is that how you would separate the, I the think brand that's strategy? A really, the- I think it's a really useful way to do it. You know, I think that many of the people who call themselves brand strategists are not. Hmm. That does Oreo, the cookie, have a brand strategy? Well, they had one a long time ago, but now they have brand tacticians. Hmm. They have people who are doing marketing tactics to maintain a brand that had a strategy from a long time ago. Strategy requires the desire for a change. 
that how are you going to move pieces on the board so that your share of whatever it is, the difference you seek to make, the change you're making, will go in the direction that you want. And if you're not here to make a change happen, then the tactics, they don't, they're not unimportant. But when we're going to talk strategy, it's about positioning, it's about game theory, and it's about time. How will tomorrow be different than today? What are you doing today going to change the dynamic in the marketplace? Because people have choices and they're not going to pick something because you want them to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. And, you know, so much of what I learned about uh, positioning came from from your work. I remember devouring uh uh, the purple cow and positioning by Al Rees and Jack Trout at the same time. And uh, for me, that's the center point of strategy because positioning is is really the reason that you give the audience to choose your brand over your competitors. And really, that's why we build a brand is to give those people a reason. What what have you seen change in, in the, let's, let's say, the art of positioning since you wrote the purple cow because you wrote the purple cow quite a while back and the fundamentals don't change <laughs> but what have you seen uh, have you seen anything change in positioning uh since you've written the book okay so you know trout and reese's book a very long time ago had a big impact on me the subtitle is the battle for your mind mm -hmm. and i think the biggest change is this and having taught positioning to more people than most um Positioning is a generous act. It is not a battle. It is not selfish. It is not about differentiation. It is not about gaining something. It is about offering people who are busy a clear map of who you are and who you're not. If you are not eagerly sending potential business to your, quote, competitors, then you don't actually have a position. Basically, you're saying, we're for everyone and you're everyone. Mm -hmm. And positioning says, if you want an $18 chocolate bar that's uh, bespoke and handmade and ethical, that's what we make. If you want a Nestle's bar to give out on Halloween that's made with slave labor, that's what they make. Here's their phone number. Mm -hmm. We don't compete with Nestle. They're doing that. We do this. Mm -hmm. Positioning is this generous act to say, if you're looking for this, that's what we have. But if you're looking for that, that's what they have. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And it, it look, it does turn the table on it a little bit and it kind of, uh, you know, it, it leans into that idea that we're here to serve as well. And, uh, you know, if you, if you figure out the best way to serve your audience, then, you know, you can, you can position that in a way that will, will appeal to them. I like to talk uh, about positioning in terms of angles, uh, angles or, or, or verticals. Of course you can position uh, with your product, with features and benefits, but there are more creative ways to position. And with how busy markets are getting at the moment, it's all, almost a requirement to look to other angles for positioning. What are your uh, some of your more creative angles to position from, whether it be personality or uh, you know uh, associations? What 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 are some of the more creative angles that you like to to look at? Okay, so I would say two really useful lessons. The first one is this. We're all familiar with the XY grid mm -hmm. that's used for positioning. If you're going to do it right, all four quadrants have to be viable, meaning you're mm -hmm. not allowed to have one of the axes be good stuff, bad stuff. 
Our competitors <laughs> make bad stuff. We make good stuff. They have to be things. They, they were my first ones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the very tempting thing to do. The problem with that is unless you have magical patents or machines, you will not be able to make a thing that is better for everyone all the time. Mm. That the position that's available to us is, oh, you might want a luxury handbag. We don't make those. We make inexpensive handbags. Those are different things. Some people might want one. Some people might want the other. You might want uh, a durable backpack that comes with a lifetime guarantee, but you might not care about that. You might just want one that's convenient and cheap, right? Both of those things are valid. So mm. that's the first thing. Pick valid axes for everybody. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is, we talk about features and benefits, but most marketers I know still get hung up on the features. And the truth of the matter is that we care about the features because we worked really hard to build the features, mm -hmm. but our customers don't care about the features at all. They only care about what the features will get them. And what they will get them are benefits. And so, you know, button fly jeans, that's a feature. Mm. The benefit is your girlfriend will think you look good in these. Those are different things. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Um, and, and that kind of segues perfectly into the idea of storytelling, because when we, you know, you can you can sell a, a feature all day, but you can you can sell a benefit through a story. And you're one of the biggest advocates for storytelling that I've I've seen, but I do see a lot of confusion out there as to what storytelling actually is. A lot of people believe that that they should tell the story of the founder, you know, um, who had a dream as a boy and grew up to mm -hmm. do this, that, and the other. And as you said, no one no one cares about the founder. They care about themselves. They care about, you know, uh, what's in it for them or or how this story touches them or aligns with who they are. What mistakes are you seeing brands making in the market with storytelling and, you know, how can they correct them? So the world's expert on storytelling is Bernadette Jiwa. Uh, she's written five bestsellers about it, J-I-W-A. Um, she's from Ireland and Australia, and she's like superstar. Like myself, exactly like yeah. myself. Um, storytelling is the basic human technology. Mm -hmm. And the stories that resonate with us are either about status, fear, or affiliation. One of the three. That's all we got. And a story is a shorthand that goes to the emotional part of our brain that turns into our story, that turns into a story that becomes part of us. So a, an example of a story is, um, last time I checked, 20% of the people in the state of Georgia and the US have Coca-Cola for breakfast. And there isn't an ad campaign that says drink Coke for breakfast. But the story is simple, which is my mom fed me Coke for breakfast. Drinking Coke for breakfast reminds me of my mom. Being reminded of my mom makes me feel safe. That is why people drink Coke for breakfast in Georgia. Mm. And when they said, oh, new Coke tastes better, they were basically insulting your mom. <laughs> and that's why the whole thing fell apart because they didn't understand there's always a story behind the story. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love how you broke down that so simplistically. And really, that's that is our role, you know, as as brand builders. It's it's about you know simplicity. It's about simplification. It's it's about making the complex easy to understand and compelling. 
at the same time. When you talk about a story like that, and and really, I'm 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 thinking more so from a small business perspective. I mean, it's applicable to big business as well. But what would be some of the more tactical delivery methods of stories like that with all of the channels that we have available to us now? Um, you know, how can we break something down like that and and deliver it tactically? Uh, uh, you know, to our different channels. Okay, so if we're going to shift the tactics, let's talk about the Wheeler Witch for a second. Okay. Um, in the uh, nineteen late nineteen twenties, early nineteen thirties, there were a lot of soda fountains in the United States, and it was the Depression. Um, and the people who worked at a soda fountain were called jerks. And so a soda jerk would stand there and make you a milkshake or an ice cream soda and stuff. And there were uh, big businesses that were selling these things. They hired a trainer named Wheeler to help increase sales. And it turns out, as disgusting as it sounds, that one of the things that people would eat in those days was uh, an ice cream soda or a milkshake with an, a raw egg in it. And the raw egg cost a penny or a nickel, and it gave you your protein for the day. And they wanted to make sales of eggs go up because it was a place to make a profit. And you could talk about the benefits of an egg and you could talk about the cost effectiveness of an egg. And you could talk about all of the ways that there are features that you should add to shake. And instead, what Wheeler taught the jerks was this. When someone orders a soda, you say to them, one egg or two. <laughs> and it dramatically increased the number of people who put one egg in <laughs> because the Wheeler witch said, look, most people are taking one or two. Do you want to be like most people or do you want to be a cheap ass and take none? But they didn't <laughs> use those words. They just created a story, a situation where you got to feel like a big spender for a penny and add that raw egg. You didn't want to disappoint the jerk and say none. One or two were the options. So that's mm -hmm. a tactic. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work if you're manipulating people. They come back tomorrow because the egg made them feel better. Um but you needed something to get under their skin because they were coming from a place of scarcity and they were believing they couldn't afford an egg. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and 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 that's it, really. When we're when we're delivering our our uh, our brands to the market, it's about finding that way to get under their skin, and that really comes from you know or deep audience research and really understanding you know what they're all about in. In this is, I want to shift gears into to, uh, something that you wrote in, in This Is Marketing, which is uh, something that I love, the smallest viable market. Um, what are some of the most uh, effective methods for finding a small, the smallest viable market? Because as you said, you know, so many brands make the mistake of, of going out there, certainly small businesses, and all they want is business, and they're prepared to just say, we're for everybody. But, you know, and you know, because of that, because they want that business, they're they're kind of afraid to close the door to other businesses, you know, or to 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 be brave to fall uh, to to go and find that smallest viable market. What are some of the most effective methods that you use yeah. for 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 doing that? This is a great uh, place to focus, and uh, you left out what I think is the main reason people don't pick a smaller audience. Part of it is the greed of saying, I want everyone. Mm -hmm. But a big part of it is the fear of if I pick a precise audience and it doesn't work, mm. now I'm really on the hook. Mm -hmm. So let's say you make headphones. Well, you, most people say, I make headphones for anyone with ears. And 
You could say, well, I make headphones for podcasters. You could say, I make headphones for podcasters who do video things and want people to notice their headphones. So let's say you pick that very precise audience and they don't buy it. Now you're on the hook because you're the one who picked the audience. Mm -hmm. You can't say, well, I'm going to go switch to another audience because you picked the audience. Mm. But in fact, in my experience, this is the single most important strategic decision that any brand makes to pick the precise audience. Patagonia picked the precise audience. Nike picked the precise audience. You can get very, very big with a very precise audience because mm. over time it smears and, and goes to more people. Whole but, Foods is a great example of yeah, that as well. Right. In my case, you know, I've written 21 bestsellers and not one of them has reached more than 1% of the US population, mm. which means I have 0% market share if you round it off. And that is fine with me. And if someone says, I didn't like your book, I get to say it wasn't for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. And and you're right. Like there there is this fear of of going all in and uh of, of putting a flag in the ground and saying, This is my flag, this is where I'm standing. Because a lot of uh, you know, a lot of people building brands uh are doing it for the first time, you know there you know there are many entrepreneurs out there who are you know trying to to turn what they do for a living into a business and it, it the concept is counterproductive that they would they would close the door to to all of these other businesses and and just focus on on this vertical but as you said and for me I like I like to talk about relevance the more relevant you can be to to people, their pain points, even the way they talk, uh, you know, the the uh the the personality that they use, you know, the the more relevant you can be to that audience, the more likely they are to to talk to you rather than the competitor around the corner who has the doors open to to everybody else. In in terms of in terms of strategy, because there are a lot of executioners out there. We I don't know of any other industry where we have so many different verticals. So many different specialists who really work on the same thing, but from a completely different angle, from designers to copywriters to social media marketers. Do you believe that having a baseline understanding of strategy is really important for executioners? And, and do you believe that will help them in their work? Okay, so either you're working in the system or you're working on the system. Mm -hmm. If you work in the system, it would really help if you were seen as the best at what you do. So if you are a book cover designer and you make the best book covers, you're never going to have to look for work. You don't have to change the publishing system. You don't have to change the way people engage with books. You are the executioner, the person who knows how to do that really well. Mm -hmm. And if you're like me and you have a limited attention span <laughs> and you are focused on uh, making a change happen, it helps to be able to change the system. And if you want to change the system, you have to understand the system. You have to see the system. You have to be able to cause uh, actions to occur that will change the game. And that's what great brands do. Once you figure that out, you get all this new resilience because there's other things you can focus on. There are other tactics available to you. So I think those are the two paths, one or the other. And mm. I don't know very many people 
who do brand strategy well. Like people at very big famous companies will reach out to me and say, do you know who we should hire to do this? And I can think of tons of people who can do tactics, mm. but they need someone to tell them what to do. And there aren't, there aren't very many people who can show up and actually have a strategy. Mm. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm finding as well, because you have the, the, you have the the tacticians now on the front lines because they're freelancers uh, and you know small shops and they're asking their clients you know their clients are giving them work and and they're asking questions well why should we do this you know what's the reason behind it and and that's why so many of these tacticians are are turning inwards now uh, mm -hmm. to work in the business instead of on the business because they're starting to ask those questions and they're realizing those questions need answering before we do anything. And, you know, that by asking those questions, that's where you're getting to the heart of, of strategy. So yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm a big proponent for really having the fundamentals of strategy, regardless of your, your, uh, your, your tactical work, if you're in the realm of branding. Um, but I think that's becoming even more important, uh, more important now. Permission marketing, uh, Seth, you wrote the book on it. And it's uh, it's something that I'm a, a you know I'm a I'm a follower I'm a I'm a believer I'm a, I'm a preacher of of permission marketing because I find that it's it's a much more intimate place it's it's where I express myself m most I know it's where you do as well with your, with your your blog and your newsletter and you know you're not on the front lines you know trying to trying to uh, get you've got their attention already and you've got their permission and now it's about that relationship building in terms of where we're going at the moment is there is there anything changing for you in the space of permission marketing or anything around it or do you still feel that this is ultimately the the best place for nurturing your clients okay so narcissists narcissistic, short-term thinking, selfish, self-absorbed, hustling marketers have ruined every medium they've shown up in <laughs> because they think, I just have to get the word out, that I have some sort of moral right to spam and steal attention. Yeah. And you know, in the time that I will be on this call, I will have gotten a dozen notes asking if people can be on my podcast from people who have never listened to my podcast because I've never once had a guest. Mm -hmm. Right, but they buy a list and spam away. Um, yeah. It really offends me because it's like peeing in the pool. It's not helpful, and mm -hmm. it ends up making the pool unusable. But and for the few who have self discipline and pull it off, permission is gold. Mm -hmm. Right, that you know, it took me decades to build my permission base, but there are a million people who read what I write every day and I don't have to hustle anybody mm. because I get to do work for my readers instead of looking for readers for my work. What mm. a privilege. And we see this in all these brands and industries that people say they want to aspire to be like, but they don't want to do the hard work of earning the asset. And the asset might not be email. It might be a telephone call, it might be visiting somebody, it might be SMS. That's not the question. The question is, would we miss you if you were gone? Mm. And I got to say, most people who call themselves brands, the answer is no. Mm. That uh, if Hyatt Hotels disappeared, we'd just stay in a different hotel. <laughs>
I, I, I love the finish of every single sentence uh, that, <laughs> that, that you've been putting forward. Yeah, look, uh, like in terms of um, with with my uh, with my list for uh, Brandmaster Academy, I'm I'm ruthless with pruning that. I've pruned, uh, you know, probably probably over sixty thousand people. And and I'm I'm still only at thirty five thousand people, but I've got you know forty five to fifty percent open rates, and you know that's telling me that keep pruning, you know, because you know the 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 ones who are staying there are are the ones who are telling you what they want. So you know you, you can use that for a feedback loop as well, and it's going to be your most dialed in feedback loop. So I, you know. Pruning is is something that's that's really important. Do you prune your your list at all in uh, with that with your your newsletter? So, I am not trying to. Um, I've intentionally decommercialized mm. all this kind of work, so there's no upside for me to make my open rate go up. I don't know what my you're, rate you're not is. a metrics man. Yeah, I mean. I used to be, I yeah. invented email marketing. And so mm -hmm. we were really metric focused, but it wasn't helping my work get better as a creator. So I stopped doing it. Um, the, thing that's, the thing that's happened with email is there's so much breakage along the way. Mm -hmm. And then Gmail comes along. They put my blog in the promo folder. My, mm -hmm. my blog is in a promo. And... They don't do it for everybody, but they do it often enough to annoy me. Those people aren't unsubscribing and they're not unopening it. They're just not seeing it. Mm. And then one day, months from now, it they change it and it comes back. I'm like, okay, great, fine. If I'm helpful, fine. If people go looking for it, fine. But I'm not going to spend my days because you're looking at my entire team. It's just me. And I don't want to optimize. I just mm. want to do my work. And I hope people, and that's I hope it. That that, people uh, want to share it. You're in that position now where you're right, just but I'm not a good example, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I think your example makes a lot of sense. Pruning it isn't as important as you being clear about who these people are. Writing for people who need you to write for them. That if you are writing for the right people, they'll prune themselves. And being clear to yourself about who it's for and what it's for, that makes a big difference. I love that. If you're writing for the right people, they'll prune themselves. That's a quote right there. Um, authenticity. You like to speak about authenticity, and and I've written about authenticity, and it's kind of gotten a bad rap because it's on on the one hand, it's like, well, you know, duh, it's like it's like saying, you know, uh, one of our values is integrity. There are some basics that are just you know assumed. Um, why do you feel there is a need for for this <laughs> this uh, sense of authenticity, and and what's what are some of the better ways that we can that we can kind of display that in our in our messaging? Okay, so I'm sort of known for being the anti authenticity person. Mm. I'm pro integrity person. Mm. Integrity means being in being in and of itself, and authenticity is this internet thing of if you feel like being a jerk be a jerk and say i was just being authentic no one wants you to be authentic <laughs> what we want is for you to be consistent 
So whether or not you feel like being the best version of yourself, we need you to be the best version of yourself because that's what we paid for. Mm. And so articulate what that is. If you're a surgeon, if you're a copywriter, if you're doing customer service, what would be the best version of you if you are authentically in a bad mood? What would be the integral version of you? Mm. What do people see when you think that no one is looking? That is what people care about. Every time I hear people talk about authenticity, I think what they're looking for is an excuse to be difficult or to be a troll. I was just being authentic. Yeah, well, then go away because I have no interest in you. Uh, I want to switch gears into something that is kind of been thrust upon us in the last, uh, you know, um, in the last year or so, and that is artificial intelligence in mm-hmm. branding and marketing. How do you see it's going to change the discipline? What's branding and marketing going to look like in five years' time? I know it's too, it's 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 too difficult now to to say ten years. What do you think it's going to be like in in five years' time? And also, how should professionals try to approach it to stay ahead? Okay, I think. AI is the biggest change in our world since the invention of electricity. Mm. A bigger change than the internet. Um, Mm. And if you're not using it for half an hour a day, you don't understand. Mm -hmm. You should, you need to put it on your calendar and go use it. Mm -hmm. So I put a 40 page business plan into Claude.ai. The plan had been written by six people over the course of three months. It was a gradual incremental Mm. thing. And I said, please read this business plan and highlight the contradictions and paradoxes within. And less than 10 seconds later, it wrote me a two-page MBA quality memo highlighting things about it that we needed to go fix. Mm. Um, Every word that I put out there with my name on it was written by me. But if I was starting today, that would not be true. Mm -hmm. And uh, what AI does today is it replaces competence. If you are simply mediocre, I can get an AI to do it cheaper and faster than you. Mm. And that means that the only space left is to not be simply competent, to not simply be what people expect. You have to figure out how to do something that AI couldn't do, because that's the only thing worth charging for. And when you are doing work that could be done by AI, you should have AI do it. So you can get back to the work that we need to pay you for. And so, you know, if I'm a company that comes up with brand names, oh boy, you're in big trouble because I can just, I can give AI the right prompt and get a hundred brand names faster than you can sit down at your desk. Mm. And if you go to Kittle, K-I-T-T-L, they can design logos and and things that are logo-like instantly in large quantity. Not the world's best, not Chip Kid quality, but one level below that. So if you're already one level below Chip Kid, you got a problem. Mm. So what do you do? What do you so for the designer or the brand namer who's looking at AI going, oh no, what am I going to do now? What would your first direction? Uh, what would your first instinct be to to evolve and keep your head above water? Well, I think the first thing is I would like to see the certificate that you have that says we're never going to change the system and you're guaranteed your old job forever, mm. because I don't think you have that certificate. Mm-hmm. The job you have didn't exist forty years ago, mm-hmm. so. Why do you think it's going to live forever? Mm. It's not, right? And so we got to start by saying, you have helped create change and now change is coming after you. When the steam shovel came along, the ditch diggers didn't say, oh, this isn't fair. They figured out how to operate a steam shovel. Mm. 
-hmm. Well, the same thing is, is true here, that the opportunity for agile, smart people to take advantage of AI over the next three years are enormous, that yeah. there's going to be this huge, like you, we just gave you 5,000 uh, shoemakers and, and you're a cobbler and they're going to work all night for you. 5,000 of them. So mm -hmm. hire them and get to work. Mm. Yeah, it is. That's it. Like it's, it's about, it's about learning and embracing and, um, you know, just, just using the tools at our disposal. And that's all we've ever had. Um, someone in the group asked me, how do you feel about every single, uh, post now sounding like Seth Godin because prompts are out there saying, write it like Seth Godin. <laughs> I'm very flattered by this. I, um, there was a five or 10 year period when I was writing my blog, when if I wasn't having a great day, I would just say to myself, well, what would Seth do? Mm. Because it's about the consistent thing, right? That I was visualizing a voice in my head that is the archetype of me, mm -hmm. but some days I'm not that person authentically. I just need to be consistent. Now, computers can do that. So I have to figure out how to write a blog post worth writing that an AI couldn't write. Mm -hmm. And you know, I had the first blog with AI built into it. You at Seth.blog, you can go ask my blog any question you want. And I took a lot of care to make sure it's not saying this is Seth talking, it's an AI talking about what my blog was about. Mm -hmm. And what I'm helping people see is being parodied, being copied is a compliment. And but it also means that the person who's being complimented has to raise their game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Seth, I'm not going to keep you too much longer. You're at the beginning of your day. I'm sure you've got a ton of things to do. However, and I've got Murray here. Who's oh, you got Murray. Can we time? Yes. Uh, you're going to introduce Murray or uh, no, Murray's, Murray's, Murray's happy. Murray's out, is he? in the shelter. He's been right, here okay. for five weeks. I'm doing my best. Okay. Okay. Beautiful. Love to hear it. Um, so if, if, if I had to strip you of your Seth Godin title, and uh, put you at the head of an unfunded startup with pretty limited budget, what would be the top three things that you do to get that brand on the map? Okay, well, the first question is, are you seeking to be funded or not? If you're seeking to be funded, you have to make something that funders want to fund. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it's a good business. It means it's something funders want to fund. Mm -hmm. Not my thing I'm interested in, so I'm going to leave that part. Okay. Number two, then, is I got to build something customers want to buy. Mm -hmm. And to do that, I have to create tension. The tension of my life will be better if I listen to this and I'm about to be left behind if I don't. And mm -hmm. creating tension is something that most people don't seek to do. They want to relieve tension. They want to say, you have a, your, your back itches, here's a back scratcher, done. All those slots are filled. Mm -hmm. The slots that are left, you know, what was... Yeah, I'm no fan of Facebook, but what was Facebook's pitch? How did they grow? It was super simple. They said to uh, unpopular Harvard men, uh, people are talking about you behind your back. You want to see what they're saying. Mm -hmm. That was the pitch. So you had to be confident enough in yourself to say, no, I don't care. Everybody mm -hmm. else flocked to the thing. And then they started talking about women. So they started saying to Harvard women, people are talking about you behind your back. You want to see what they're saying? And then and on and on. You create this tension that can only be solved with forward motion and connection. And then the third piece is the network effect. That the 
most important thing that the internet did to marketing is simple. If you create something that works better when other people are using it, we will tell other people. The fax machine is a perfect example of this. First person who had a fax machine, what could they do with it? Can't send a fax to yourself because you get a busy signal. You had to tell your friends to go get a fax machine so you could send them a fax. We can create things that work better when we tell the others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that uh, philosophy on tension. And that uh, it really speaks to the idea that, you know, you you don't find a position these days, you create one and you create one by creating tension. And I, I, I really, really love that. Now, I'm, I'm going to let you go. Usually I ask my guests, you know, what have you got coming up? With, what's your call to action? Where can I send people? But, you know, you're just giving back. What's 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 coming up for you at the moment, Seth? In March, we're launching a software tool that hopefully will raise a billion dollars for charity. Wow. And um, it's been a labor, a labor of love. It's going very well. And people will find out about it on my blog when yeah. it's ready. It'll be fun. Beautiful. So if uh, you want to find out about that, get on over to Seth's blog. Seth, I really, really do appreciate the time. It's been an honor and a privilege. And I've, uh, I've I made up with this chat. So thank you so much. Thanks, Stephen. Keep Cheers, making a ruckus. Seth. We'll bye see bye. you. I want to take a second to show some appreciation. I appreciate every single one of our listeners, but I have a soft spot for listeners who share the love. Shout out to Lava Latil from Saudi Arabia. I found a masterpiece. Thank you so much for all the great info in this podcast. If you want to share the love and possibly get a shout out on the podcast, please take a couple of minutes to leave a review on your favorite platform. We really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to learn more brand strategy techniques to level up your skills, make sure you check out brandmasteracademy.com. There's plenty of free resources and premium content for you to download and get you going. If you'd like to join our Facebook group full of like-minded brand strategists, all learning from each other, then find us by searching for the Brand Strategy Community, where you can find exclusive content for members as well. If you enjoyed this content, please be sure to give us an honest review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listened. And make sure you tune in for the next episode of the Brandmaster Podcast.